Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tougher even if they don't. Today is Monday, September the 24th. And this is episode 2,298 of the Survival Podcast, creeping up on episode 2,300, which will be, I guess, well, Wednesday this week. Pretty cool, huh? Anyway, it is a Monday. That means it is time for a listener feedback show. This is where you send me an email to jack at com. jack at com. In the subject line, please include the initials TSPC, all capital letters is best, it doesn't really matter though, but do it like it's a word, so TSPC, no periods or nothing like that, and then, you know, comment for Jack, idea for Jack, Jack, you suck, whatever, say whatever you want, just put the TSPC in there, and that way if it goes in a junk mail file, sooner or later I'll get off my dead butt and I'll uh, do a search for it and I'll find it, and then I'll get back to you or get you on the air or whatever, that is my email. That is my real email. There's no person that takes care of it for me. I do read all my email eventually, and I do answer most of it in some way, form, shape, or another uh, if it is a direct question. Certainly if it's a customer service or something like that, you're definitely going to hear back from me. Anyway, what do we got for you guys today? We got, uh, well, millennials are flocking to the Rust Belt. I'm going to talk about what it means and what it signals and... Uh, I'm going to mention another article I really didn't feature, just as an aside, that kind of goes along with this. I think we're seeing a turning in the millennials right now. We're seeing the millennials actually start to really come of age and start to realize who and what they are, and, and they're actually kind of turning out to be pretty cool. Um, and we're also seeing one of my laws of life play out. Everything is a cycle. Everything's a cycle. Uh, next, uh, how do you identify and assess a market in your business? Like, will this work? Will this work here? Will this work anywhere? How do I know if I'm in the right place if it's a you know point of sale business or something like that? It's specific to uh, uh, like backyard spin farming that type of thing, but really you do this the same way no matter what. So we'll talk about that little business question for us today. Got a question on field care of a rifle on a rainy hunt. Actually, really simple. Does not need to be complicated, and uh, we'll talk about that. The 380 for concealed carry. We have a, a satire video to go along with that question. I'll play the audio of it. it I, I listened to it again today. I'm like, yeah, that'll work in audio. I'll play it. It's pretty cool. I'll tell you a secret when I play it, too. A secret that, well, you'll find out when you hear it. It's still a secret until I tell you. Anyway, uh, here comes the millions of jobs lost in retail I've been talking about, courtesy of Amazon Go, by the year 2021. We'll talk about that and the real impact that's coming from all of this automation. Small businesses and credit cards for on-site sales. So point of sale with a credit card. Again, this one was asked from the standpoint of like farmer's market stands and stuff like that. But it doesn't really matter. It's the same old, same old. We'll talk about that. I'll tell you why my answer is yes, you should do it. And I'll tell you how simple it can be. Um, I have a question on the Tesla Powerwall. This person must be kind of new because we've definitely talked about the Powerwall before. Uh, but it's phrased a little bit differently than we've asked answered before. And it... It gives me the opportunity to talk more about, again, the direction things are going. That's kind of a theme in today's show. And then I got a question on the stun method, what it is, what it's for, and what it isn't for. And it started out with, hey, I used the stun method and I killed everything. What does stun mean? Sheer, total, utter neglect. 
And my response was, well, that's because you did it wrong. And uh, we get some follow-up on that now. And I was, I was waiting to hear back from the guy because I think this will be a good one to go over because I realized that, like, I'll say something and I'm pretty sure everybody understands it and sometimes they don't. All right. So we'll get to all of that more in just a moment. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is ButcherBox.com. I love having sponsors where I can be like, you should use this company because I use this company. You know what I did right before I hit record so that it would be ready? I have a beautiful center-cut pork roast that came from ButcherBox. And I crammed it into a Dutch oven. And I cut up some celery and I put it on one side. And I cut up some carrots and I put it on the other side. Some onions went in there too. little Chef Keith Snow Northern Italian seasoning mix. Some apples, about six tablespoons of butter, and three bay leaves. And that's going to go in there at 300 degrees. I'm waiting to hear an alarm go off in the distance. Hopefully it won't be one you can hear and disrupt the flow. I'll hit pause. I'll go out there and turn the temperature down to 250 and let it slow cook in there and all that goodness. That's from ButcherBox. That's in our cut pork roast. And now you're hungry, and you should be. But ButcherBox is just a great place to get your meat from because it's like having your own personal shopper go out and pick your meat out. When they first approached me, and they told me, you know, we do pastured pork, pastured poultry, grass-fed beef, I'm like, that all sounds great, man, but I don't know about this having meat shipped to my house thing. You don't understand, because, like, Dorothy knows, well, we go to the grocery store, she's like, well, go pick out the meat, because she knows she's not going to be the one to do it. Even if we go to, like, the Whole Foods, and it's, like, premium meat behind the butcher, I still want to be like, no, I don't want that, I want that. No, not that one. I didn't say that, I want that It's hard for me to let go of that. ButcherBox does such a great job with the quality of their cuts of meat. Check them out today at ButcherBox.com. Remember, if you're MSB, you can get free bacon for life. Check your benefits section of the MSB to learn more. So, I just mentioned the other sponsor today, in the middle of that, Chef Keith Snow. If you're going to get all this great meat coming to your house, or you're going to grow all this cool stuff in your backyard, or produce your own quail or eggs or whatever, the only thing you should learn how to cook and do a really great job at it, check out HarvestEating.com. Great products, great podcasts, great Courses on how to cook, great YouTube channel, great blog, awesome dude, Chef Keith Snow at HarvestEating.com. Remember, Chef Keith is not just a loyal sponsor of this show for many, many years now. Keith is also a member of our expert council and uh, serves the audience by answering questions. Uh, about two or three times a month, he's, he's you know, c coming in, spending you know, 10, 15 minutes of his time in speaking. And I think those of you that maybe don't do podcasting and understand, like that, that means probably he got an hour of work into it. So he puts several hours of, a month into work to serving this audience. So remember that when you're thinking about where to get your seasonings from. Maybe you can save a dollar, maybe two, but they won't be as good and it won't be somebody that's supporting you like Chef Keith. Does. Check him out today at harvesteating.com. Next up, let's take a look at a year in history. Uh, we're up to the year 155 and we're taking a look at Roman military logistics. During a warfare, the Roman standard doctrine was to wage highly aggressive, fast-moving campaigns in order to support tens of thousands of soldiers when an organized system of supply was necessary. Sounds a lot like uh, Blitzkrieg War, doesn't it? Anyway, different, different time, different, different weaponry, not as fast, but the same tactic. Anyway, each legion had around 4,800 men and 1,200 pack animals, and each day they needed 18,000 pounds of grain. 14,000 gallons of water, and 40,000 pounds of fodder. 40,000 pounds of fodder for a legion. Think about that. Early Roman armies needed long baggage trains. That caused slow progress. But in the late Republic, the general Gaius Marius eliminated most of the baggage train and forced his soldiers to carry much of their own gear. 
leading to the nickname Marius Mules. This practice continued during the Empire, with each soldier carrying a week's supply of food. The baggage train carried three to four weeks of food. This could consist of herds of animals being driven along with the army to provide fresh meat. Foraging was a routine practice to find water and fodder. Legions would also forcibly purchase supplies. Yeah, you're selling that for one denarius, whether you like it or not. You want me to wrap you in hell with my sword? Nah, I thought you wanted to sell it. Okay, so they did that. At least they're nice. Because they also stole supplies from enemy cities and villages. The largest amount of food and equipment was supplied by a long supply lines that fortified depots that were supplied from outside the theater of operations. As time passed, roads would be constructed to con- connect everything, uh, the ever-lengthening line of depots delivering supplies to the front lines. There are several examples of supply lines being cut, most notably during the Iberian Campaign and the Second Punic War and the more recent Dacian Campaigns. The risk of, to Roman supply chains was mitigated by building forts along the route to ensure, and ensuring the legions carried enough supplies to handle being cut off. My take by David Verne, most ancient armies couldn't manage the supply needs of large armies and were forced to either maintain small armies or have a short campaign with a large army. The only nations able to conquer large territories and build empires were the ones that support the large field armies. During Caesar's conquest of Gaul, He was able to supply his army by relying on friendly tribes and supplies from Rome. The Gauls were able to raise a massive army, but they could only supply it for several weeks, which forced them to hurry and make tactical errors. Caesar could take his time and fight where he wanted. The lesson in warfare there, choose the time and the tactic of your battle. And we go a little art of war, and then only engage when you know for certain you will have victory. A little paraphrase there, but it's basically the art of war. So I'm going to choose when I'm going to fight, how I'm going to fight, who I'm going to fight, and what way I'm going to fight them. And only when all of those things put together tell me that victory is a certainty will I fight. Until such time, I'll wait it out, I'll run away, unless you force me. Like if you invade, okay, we got to fight. But if you're going out on the offense, that's the way to win with offense. There's a lot to be said for that not just in war. Because really we could use a little less war in the world. But when it comes to anything competitive, including business decisions, you can take a lot of that to the bank. And uh, that's why there is a whole you know, group of books written around things like The Art of War and The Book of Five Rings applied to the world of business. We can learn in these tactics just as chess is a metaphor not only for battle but other things in life. So, too, can we learn from the philosophies of effective warfare. Okay, with that, let's go ahead and get into uh, the topic of today's show. I wanted to remind you, though, as we lead off today real quick, one more time, Saturday the 29th, 8 a.m., what happens? MS, I'm sorry, uh, the Survival Podcast Fall Workshop goes on sale. 8 a.m., Saturday, Central Standard Time, not Eastern Standard Time, Okay, but you, if that happens, you'll just be sitting here hitting refresh for now. But if you do Mountain Standard Time or Pacific Standard Time, guess what? You're going to lose out. So if you're in one of those time zones, it might be an early morning for you. I did this on a Saturday because I figured it was when most people would have the greatest opportunity to be able to get online and try to get a seat. I know no day that I pick is going to be optimum for everybody, but I tried to pick a day that I thought would be best for people. Also, it would be a day that I don't have a lot going on, so... If something goes wrong for people, I can help out. So that's the other reason I picked a Saturday. Anyway, uh, this is, again, I mean, this is going to be the most awesome, most amazing workshop 
that we have ever done. Um, remember, we have the $50 optional swag pack. Keep an eye on the blog. I'll be putting more information out this week. And I hope to see many of you here. If you've been always been one of these people, it's like, one day I'm going to get to a workshop. Do this one. I'd love to. I know we're going to have a tremendous number of alumni. I'm going to push the attendance higher than I've ever allowed it to be before. But I would love to see some brand new folks this time around. And let me tell you something. It is kind of a club, a club of clubs. When you come to one of these workshops, the people you meet, these relationships last long term, and it it transforms people's lives. It really does. I don't sit out of ego. I'm actually very humbled by that. I When I first started doing this, I was like, yeah, you know, we'll get some work done. And we'll have some people out. We'll feed them really good. And, you know, we'll do a better job than the workshops I've been to. That was my entire goal. Make people well-fed and happy. And that was it. And uh, maybe make a few bucks. And it turned into something that is indescribable. So if you can come, and the dates of the workshop are November 7 through 11, but the tickets go on sale this Saturday, been getting some questions on airports again. Here it goes. The best airport to fly into is Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport. You can do Love Field. It's a longer ride, uh, either by Uber or Lyft or taxi or by rental car, but it will work. If you save $25, bucks, 50 bucks to fly into Love Field, I would fly into DFW. If it saves you a couple hundred dollars, you see what I'm saying. Um, it's about a 30-minute drive from DFW Airport to where I live. If you take the express lane, and you should, it'll be the best $5 you ever spend. Uh, if you don't take the express lane, if you're the one driving especially, you'll be ready to kill yourself by the time you get through that 183 connector. You take the express lane, and it's just, it's like you're just going like light speed while everybody's over there cussing. It's great. Um, you can get Uber and Lyft here. It can be a little spotty getting them back to the airport, but generally speaking, we work it out. People share rides. There is a super secret squirrel email list, and it's run on Yahoo Groups. Now, some of you hate it. I'm sorry. That's what we do because everybody's already in it, and it's completely optional. People can opt themselves out, and I don't have to do nothing. That's why I did it years and years ago. Um, but once you're on that email list, you can send emails, say, hey, I'm going to be here, and set up ride coordination because I don't get involved with that. My belief is that you are my responsibility to make sure that you get what you expect and you're happy and I take good care of you from the minute you get onto my property till the minute you leave it and I have to cut the line somewhere and that seems the property line seems like the right place to cut the uh, uh, participate or the uh, responsibility for your happiness line as to cut at the property line. Uh, but it's always worked itself out. So if you want to come. You can bet on that happening. And, you know, there was enough time in between. If you're like, should I rent a car or not? See if you can set something up. If you can't, then go ahead and rent your car. It's, you know, you've got plenty of time left to rent a car. Trust me, DFW car rental counter sucks, but they got plenty of cars, and you will never not be able to get one, especially that time of year. All right, so let's get into it. So the first thing I have for you is a story um, that, that I found really interesting. And I actually want to tell you first about the story I'm not covering today. Um To, to kind of put in perspective where I'm going to go with this one. So the article I'm just going to do as an aside here is about the Airstream trailers. Remember the old-fashioned Airstream trailers? He's called them land yachts when they marketed them heavily to Americans in the 50s and 60s, which was kind of the golden age of people getting out and doing stuff. Uh, it got to the point where like everybody owned a car. It was post-World War II. The highway system was being put in everywhere. Blue-collar jobs were booming. And people wanted to go see America. And in spite of the false nostalgia that, you know, every, you know, every home was a one-income home and the family had everything they could want, 
Um, it, actually, it was a tougher time than it is today in many ways for most people. Uh, it was a little easier to survive on one income, but you know, people on two incomes do a lot better today than most blue-collar families did in the 50s. So if you wanted to go out and explore, hotels were expensive, and people went with RVs. It became a booming thing. And the Airstream trailers were towable with a station wagon. You know, an Oldsmobile, you know, Cutlass uh, panel wagon could tow one. And uh, so it became a big thing. And today, Airstream's kind of making a comeback, and their trailer's sort of retro and sort of new looking. Um, but the biggest customers, you think, would be aging baby boomers. Now, aging, aging baby boomers, if they're buying RVs, they're buying motor coaches. They're going in style. It's millennials. Millennials are buying these high-tech RVs. And I, and I want to, but they, with the nostalgic flair. And it's not a bunch of hipsters. Don't, don't see it that way. That are out, you know, drinking Pat's Blue Ribbon Beer and look, looking like lumberjacks but can't work an axe. These are, you know, your average everyday working class millennials. Remember, millennials are not 18-year-olds. I guess it might be some 18-year-old millennials. I don't know, remember exactly where the cutoff is. But most of your millennials today are in their 20s to early 30s. So if you're, you know, 45, 55, 60 years old, somewhere in the age bracket I am, think back to when you were 28 and you start to realize you're looking at people and thinking of them as kids. Some of them deserve it, but a lot of them don't. So anyway, this other side of this is now they're also flocking to Rust Belt real estate. This is on CNBC. I have a link to this article in the show notes. Let's give you a little bit of it. As real estate prices in major U.S. cities continue to soar, some young buyers and renters have decided to take their business elsewhere. They're investing in homes in such states as Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Experts say in search of more affordable living and new places to plant down roots. For decades, the part of the U.S. otherwise known as the Rust Belt has been synonymous with hard times for decades, ever since manufacturing bases like Detroit began to suffer the effects of deindustrialization. Plants closed down and jobs disappeared, and once vibrant cities became symbols of decay. In recent years, however, the revitalized Rust Belt economy has brought in younger workers and made area real estate an attractive investment bet. The overwhelming driver of millennial shift to the region is affordability. However, Constantine Valahui, uh, director of research for real estate research and analysis firm Neighborhood X, said there's more to it than that. Rather than just home ownership, it's about having roots and contributing to the revival of a place that needs businesses uh, that create jobs and create value. And slowly but surely, form formerly blighted towns and cities are coming back to life with the help of a younger class of real estate buyer, according to Paul Busama, president and CEO of lending real estate uh, companies of the world. Um, the last, the, the la latest influx of buyers see cities as financial opportunities and places to build something new, especially with prices far below prevailing prices in cities. Millennials are swiping up properties for next to nothing prices near downtown city areas that have become completely revitalized. Um, Lending RE has listed a three-bedroom Victorian home in Mansfield, Ohio, with asking price of $39.9. Compared to what Zillow data shows, the medium home value nearly $700,000 in New York City, whopping $1.3 in San Francisco, because people that live there are retarded. I said that on my own, anyway. Back to the article. And there's little wonder why aspiring homeowners are flocking to the Rust Belt. The experts say there's more to consider than bargain prices. Community-mindedness with millennials that attracts them to the smaller Rust Belt towns, said Peter Herring, president of Herring Realty in Mansfield, Ohio. We're seeing an intense interest in participating in the revitalization of towns 
being part of the community. It's palpable and it's exciting, he added. You read the rest if you want. It's a pretty long article, but let me tell you what I think is going on here. Everything's a cycle. And these young people who have been the, the brunt of criticism for so long, because so many of them are idiots, just to be fair to the people that are hard on them. But I think what you're, what you're forgetting is that most people between the ages of about 15 and 22 are, are idiots. They might be, you know, like the new group of idiots may have less things they can do. Maybe we could do more stuff, us that are Gen Xers, tweeners, boomers, you know, like uh, later boomers. Um, we could do a lot more stuff than I think that that last group that came through that 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 pipe that you know that uh, that funnel you know where that pipe tightens down and that you know they're old enough that you see what they're doing and they're not old enough to have caught their, their brains to catch up with their body yet and we forget we were stupid too when we were 20. We might have known how to use a screwdriver a little bit better or whatever, but we did stupid stuff too. And now they can put everything online so we can see them being stupid. And uh, but then when they get through that phase, they get through that kind of college or first, you know, entry level stuff, and they start wanting a life. They're like every other generation out there. They start looking for what works. And this is what I said. I think this generation that everybody's picked on for so long may end up being one of the most redemptive forces for our country. I do have concerns with their how many of them seem to be enamored with socialism, but I also think that tends to be self-correcting because. Once it starts to be your money that's being taxed, that you worked hard to get to the point where you can earn it, you're not so hip on this whole idea of it being redistributed anymore now, are you? But here's the bigger thing I think that you're seeing here. And you see this with RVs and travel and a desire and the willingness to move, to be pioneering, to say, I can't afford a home in New Jersey, and by the way, it sucks here. They say it sucks over there, but I went and visited a friend out there, and it's pretty nice. I'm going to pick up and move and put down roots in a new place. Everything's a cycle. And because everything's a cycle, one of the things our founders knew was to form a republic. Because a lot of the things that we get so worked up and so worried about and think it's the end of America, a republic fixes them. Because instead of everything being as bad as it looks everywhere, we don't have all the homes in America with a median price of $1.3 million dollars or $700,000, or $300,000. Even where there are places where it's really nice to live, it's not just the slums or whatever, you can still find affordable housing because we have a republic. So what happens? People move. People go there. They develop that area. Eventually that area becomes prosperous, and sooner or later, government will screw it up and overinflate prices. But because it's a republic, some other place that waned, We'll be waiting for that next group of pioneers to move on and do it again and do it again and do it again. You see, if we don't forget what the purpose of a republic is, even as an anarchist, I can admit, it is one of the greatest moderating forces against the state that there is. And we need more republicanism. I notice I did not say more republicans. We need more, as in the GOP, right? We need more republicanism. The less the federal government can do, The more the states will choose to do, the more the variations between them will become apparent, and the more the republic will be able to repair the damage that's inevitable as long as the state is running anything. But that's what you're seeing happening. You're seeing these young people. And a lot of us, you know, we're still thinking of millennials the way we did 10 years ago. You seem to forget, they're 10 years older too. You know? 
And, and they've learned a lot in this. I know you can send me some examples of some dumb ones. I Again, and most of them will be 22 years old, 18 years old. And I'm going to tell you right now, I did some dumb stuff when I was 20 years old. Let me tell you, I'll give you a confession here, a dumb story. Nothing bad happened, but it sure could have. There was a night that me, a friend of mine named Brad, and another friend of mine named Walt were in the back of another friend's truck, you know, like in the bed. Ah, oh, that's fine, Jack. People do that all the time. Yeah, it was like a Ford Ranger with a roll bar. So the three of us were standing up holding on to the roll bar, passing a bottle of Jack Daniels back and forth to each other. And this truck was doing about 110 miles an hour going across the Panama Canal over the Bridge of America's weaving in and out of traffic, And we were sharing like three crazy cowboys. Now, do I in any way think that was a good idea? No. Is there still a bit of a fond memory there? Yeah, I'll probably never forget that. Would I do anything remotely that stupid today? No. Why? Because I'm not 20. Well, a lot of those kids that were 20 10 years ago are 30 now. And you're starting to see them go out and become members of this republic that we call the United States of America. And I, for one, am very happy to see it. I'm not saying everything's going to be sunshine and unicorn farts going forward, but I am saying this generation is starting to show us what they're really made of, and it turns out it ain't so bad after all. And for all of you folks that have been listening all these years that are in that generation that got tired of hearing how bad you were, maybe you feel a little bit better today. I think you're entitled to. Uh, let's take another one. So the next one comes from Michael in Big Sandy, Texas. He says, Jack, how do you identify your market? Details. I watched a video in which Curtis Stone said the first thing you have to do if you want to become a profitable small farm is find out if there are actual people in your area that want to buy your products. In short, how do you do that? How do I identify people in my area that want to buy my asparagus, for instance? Michael in Big Sandy, Texas. Um, this can be a complicated or a simple problem depending on the situation. So... It's unique, though, the industry you're talking about here. It's the same thing everywhere, but it, this is a little bit more unique. When it comes to what you have to charge to make it worth growing produce, um, where you live has a lot to do with how good your market is, and that's what Curtis is talking about here. So he lives in kind of a foodie town where there are – Lots of restaurants that want to be able to say they're serving local food. And he's able to produce in enough volume to maintain restaurant customers. And I, I, having done so with eggs myself, I can tell you it, it is something that gives you a tremendous advantage. Because restaurants do go through a lot of volume and they need to know, you know, they'll handle seasonality. We won't have this thing during these months, but we'll have this thing instead. They'll, they'll, they'll work with that because that's part of their flair that they have to their customers. Um, but if you are like, well, I might have it this week but not next, and then I'll probably have it again the week after, and then maybe a week after that, and then probably two not, and then I'll have it again. Like, you can't do that. It, it doesn't work that way. And the reality is the more you move out into the country, the more people grow their own food. So I had to look up where Big Sandy was, but the closest thing to it of any real size is Tyler. And I, Tyler does not strike me as a foodie city. It may not be the right business for you uh, from a standpoint of doing it the way Curtis does. In other words, you know, getting people to let you farm in their backyard and stuff. Remember, Curtis does everything with a bicycle and a really small truck. And central to his business model is 
being able to harvest food, you know, at 10 o'clock in the morning and have a check in his hand for it at 11 o'clock in the morning. And when you build up a business on restaurants in a market like that, it is only natural by extension to build up direct retail customers. And he does farmer's markets and stuff for that as well. He does them as much to meet new chefs who are checking things out. So in your situation, I would say my gut is that that business model won't work. I could be wrong. I mean, you go out and talk to people and say, you know, do you have, if this was available, would you buy it for this price? You know, do the Excel spreadsheet and figure it out and, and do some exploration to see if you can find a market. I do know someone out in your general area that's doing it. His name's Richard Hastings. He's been on the show before. You can look up uh, his episode of the podcast. If I, if I remember when I get done, I'll go put it in the show notes. But if you put Hastings in the, uh, Hastings in the search bar in the site, you'll find the episode. I think he's only ever been on once. And he's out in East Texas like you are. And he's growing under tunnels, and he's doing it all with aquaponics, and he's mostly growing salad vegetables. But he's selling most of his product into Dallas and Fort Worth, and, and I think he's expanded beyond that into some other suburbs and things like that. And, he's again, he's on enough volume to be able to sell into these restaurants and direct sales markets. So it's not that you don't have there, – there is always a market for food. Can you access the market? My guess is by looking at the map of where Big Sandy is that if you put a little sign out that says free, you know, fresh tomatoes and lettuce for sale, you probably won't do very good. So it's not so much about identifying if there's a market, but identifying where is the market and can I develop a business model that enables me to reach the market. And that's kind of a different thing. One thing that really expands that is the ability to ship a product. Um, but then you're competing with everybody else who can ship a product. So you have to balance that as well. I will say that the, the backyard food production thing for profit is one of the more unique things like that. You can go to almost any small town and set up, let's say, a tire shop, and you're going to get a certain amount of business. Because no matter where you are, you drive cars and you need your tires fixed, or you need your tires rotated, or you need a used tire because you can't afford new tires or something. You can always find a niche for something like that. When it comes to food, there's always grocery stores, and grocery stores will always sell for less. When you're selling a premium product, let's say an organic microgreen or salad greens or something like that, you're selling to a sliver of the population, people that have the money and care enough to spend more. That's who you're selling to. So the bigger the market, the bigger that sliver is. See, the thing is, that sliver is everywhere. You talk to enough people in Big Sandy, you can find a handful of them that care enough and have the money. But is there enough of them to build a business on so that you can make more of them by growing a brand and growing? You know, a lot of people will say that they'd be interested, but you know, it comes down to, to paying three times what they would normally pay for a cucumber that they can grow in their own backyard and they grew up in the country and they know that it's hard to get them to do it. So. I think that you need to look at this a little bit differently based on where you are and figure out either a shippable product or a product that can be done in volume in such a way that you can pick a strategic market that you're delivering to once a week or something like that. That's the only way I see that working for you. But in the end, it, it, this is the analysis you're always doing. What type of person buys this? And where is the nearest concentration of them to me?
And, 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 and then it gets really clear what you have to do to be able to succeed. You might find, for instance, that doing pastured pork works better than growing vegetables. Because now you're delivering a, you know, a, a pig or a half hog to somebody. And you can do a certain amount of those. And you know, you know, you can pre-sell some. And that way you only, you mitigate your risk and you go from there. And it's kind of like general timeline to take a pig to harvest size is about seven to nine months. So, and then it all happens at once. And that might work better in a more remote situation. So those are just some thoughts and ideas for you. Let's take another one. This comes from Joe. Joe says, what do you do for field care of a rifle in the rain? I'm headed out for a multi-day hunt. We'll likely see rain on the trip. What do I do with my rifle when I return to my tent after it's been rained on? Anything I can do to weatherproof my rifle before the trip? I'm taking a Ruger American with a blue barrel and synthetic stock. I'm hunting elk in the mountains of British Columbia, Canada. Thanks, Joe. I mean, the biggest thing is make sure you take a cleaning kit with you. And at the end of the day, wipe that rifle down, dry it up nicely, put a thin coat of oil on it. If it rains significantly, run at least a dry patch or even a patch with a, a single drop of oil through the barrel and then run a dry patch. You don't really want to really heavily oiled barrel on that first shot, maybe a long shot on an elk or something like that, because it can impact your point of aim. Uh, a lot of people, when they go out hunting, they'll check their zero, and even if they, they took, they checked their zero yesterday, uh, but they cleaned their gun because they're hypochondriacs when they go out, they'll at least fire one fouling shot to deal with that. It usually, you know, unless you're, you know, shooting thousand-yard competitions, it's not enough to matter. You can't usually blame it for why you miss, but it makes people a little more comfortable. Um, But that's about it. I, I really recommend a good set of flip uh, flip up scope covers uh, that keeps the rain off of the glass, and that way you're only you know uh, opening those up uh, when you when you need to. So I really recommend that. If <clears throat> if I'm somewhere and it's raining pretty good and I'm moving with my rifle, um, as long as where I'm hiking, it's not going to present more of a problem like potential to put the tip in the mud, I'll generally, if I'm carrying my rifle on sling, sling the rifle upside down and reach down with like my right hand and I'll kind of hold the barrel. And actually to me, it's a much safer way uh, to, to sling arms. It doesn't carry as comfortable in my opinion, but it, it, to me it's safer because you have kind of direct control on that muzzle. And a lot of people don't think about it, but one of the more dangerous things, and it's, it's one of the things that people that aren't experienced put themselves in a danger with is when people are hiking and you're going up or downhill and one of the people in that procession has a rifle slung with barrel up, uh, a lean forward or backward, and all of a sudden that, that barrel that you're thinking you're, you've got it pointed at the sky is pointed at the guy in front of his head. So in, in some situations I prefer to go to port arms where you see that muzzle and maintain muzzle awareness or flip, and again, for the rain, it really isn't that big of a deal, though. Um, there's there's a lot of stuff out there today, frog lube and stuff like that, that people were pre-coating their rifles with, and I, I just look at it this way. Our grandparents used Hops number 9 oil. Their guns are the guns we have in our gun cabinets and safes today. They did not rust apart and fall to pieces. Some of them have killed more deer than any one rifle has a right to. I don't get all wrapped up about this, and I, I just don't think you should either. Uh, but make sure you take the equipment necessary to maintain your weapon with you. And again, you get home, 
You wipe it down. If you're elk hunting out of a lodge, a lot of times there'll be uh, a gun rack that they'll provide. Most hunting guides will have a place that they want guns to go when you're not hunting. It's for safety. And you understand, no matter how sure you are that you're safe, they're dealing with, you know, two people a week, four people a week, a dozen people a week. They don't know from Adam. And I think it's in everybody's best interest. And usually they'll have that located somewhere warm and dry, usually near a heat source or something like that. It helps dry things out. And so, you know, you might look to make sure that that's the case. Um, but if you do that, you're not going to have any problems. You're really not. Your, your gun's not going to rust apart or your, your barrels, your, your, your bolt's not going to rush shut while you're pursuing elk. It's, it's, it's not like give it a good wipe down. You know, open the action, wipe it out, run a patch through it, and and, and call it a night, and uh, get up in the morning and do it again. And hopefully, uh, at some point, you you stop doing it not because you're tired, but because elk down. Uh, another gun question here. Uh, this is from Marty, and Marty says, Jack, what are your thoughts on the 380 for concealed carry? I know you've mentioned you carry a 45 as your go-to carry gun, but with my lifestyle or situation, a smaller frame gun is called for. I have no problem with that, and I've actually been carrying a SIG 239 uh, for quite a while now uh, in 357 SIG because uh, I really like the gun, and that's a hard thing for me to admit, but I really do like the gun. Um, I, he says, I have a Glock 43 and 9mm and a Ruger LCP in 380. Well, I prefer the 9mm, sometimes the 380 in a pocket holster is really a perfect choice to fit, whether I'm wearing where, for what I'm wearing or the places I'll be going. I know this video is just satire, but it caught me thinking, what say you, Jack? Thanks for all you do for the community. I'm going to play this video for you. And the entire point of this video is to mitigate concerns, but yet it made Marty actually start to think, is there anything to it? So I'll play this for you. Uh, I will say this. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. It's kind of funny listening to it in audio, but the 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 video, it really takes it over the top. So, uh So uh, go ahead and uh, give you a listen here. I once met a young man who told me all about the time he was approached by a knife-wielding hoodlum in a dark alleyway. When the criminal demanded his wallet, the young man responded by pulling a 32 caliber automatic. But much to that young man's surprise, the criminal was not impressed with his pea shooter and actually burst out laughing. Fortunately, the young man held a more dangerous weapon in his other hand, a scalding hot cup of coffee. He flung it into his attacker's face and managed to escape unharmed. That young man should thank his lucky stars. But every year, thousands of pocket pistol-packing Americans are not so lucky. In fact, more often than not, these sub-caliber mouse guns are responsible for getting their owners killed in the street. Criminals won't run from a pint-sized pistol because experience has taught them something that medical science has only recently been able to explain. Thanks to high-tech computer simulations, doctors can now measure a human being's capacity for sustaining injury in terms of health points. A normal healthy American adult has 100 health points. Studies show that being shot with a 45 ACP depletes a person's health by, you guessed it, 45 points. A double tap to the chest with one of these babies, and he won't be getting up anytime soon. In comparison, a single bullet from a 9mm does only 15 points worth of damage. Men shouldn't waste their time with a pop gun like this, but women and Europeans might appreciate the lighter kick. 
In that case, a high-capacity clip can help compensate for the lack of stopping power. With a dozen or more shots on hand, you can probably get the job done eventually. But now let's look at a pocket pistol caliber like the popular 380 ACP. Each round wounds the target by a measly six health points. With an average clip size of seven shots, these guns are lacking in stopping power and capacity. Seasoned criminals know that even if you manage to hit them with the full payload, it's nothing that can't be fixed with a band-aid and a stiff drink. Proponents of these puny people poppers will typically point out just how convenient they are to carry on one's person. Now, I'm not normally one to judge, but that sounds to me like just plain old laziness. A businessman's suit jacket provides ample cover for a real sidearm, and in more casual attire like this, a stylish yet inconspicuous fishing vest keeps my 45 out of sight. And on those days when it's just too hot for a vest, well, I've always got a snub-nosed magnum ready to go in an ankle holster. So there's really no excuse for betting your life on a pathetic underpowered pocket rocket. All you need is a little determination, a strong back, a custom holster, a premium leather gun belt, a completely new wardrobe, and plenty of expert advice, and you never have to be without your full-size man-stopper by your side. The Second Amendment was written by men for men. And if you're not man enough to carry a real gun every day, well, maybe you don't deserve to carry a gun at all. I'm Manny Mansfield. Thanks for watching Shooting Outdoors. So I, uh, I wanted to let you know that video is put out by Lucky Gunner. And you guys hear about Lucky Gunner from me all the time. No, you don't. Yeah, you do. Um, they are another marketing arm of BulkAmmo.com. So that's who put that out. The guy, Dustin, and the guys over there put out this satirical video. And the, the I really think the dude in the video... Uh, I don't remember. I don't know who he actually is, but I really think he's like he's like the, you know, the Saturday Night Live version of Masada Yub. I think that's what they're going for is to look like Masad. Uh, I'm guessing it just seems that way to me. But it's 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 really a fantastic video. And like at one point when they're showing the pocket pistol, they call it mouse gun or whatever. They show like the guy like tam dam 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 dam, and it, it hits the target. And then they they switch the camera angle, and the bullets have all like flattened out on the paper target and just fall off. They don't even go through the cardboard. It's it's pretty funny. But so here's here's my take on this. Satire aside. And just put the video behind you now. Every handgun is woefully inadequate for the purpose of immediate stopping of a threat. And if you look at the data of handgun shoots across the spectrum, the hell of a lot of fatalities but when it comes to first stop, first shot incapacitation of the target, they all suck. And you know which one has, until you move into, like, rifle rounds, which round has, like, as high or close to as high a lethality rate from a single shot is any round? 22 long rifle. Can't remember where the study was, but there's a guy that did kind of an informal study. He took data on shoots over 20 years. The caliber, how many shots were fired, everything that happened, put it all together, and the 22 did as good as a 357 Magnum and only markably less than a 44. And actually, it was the the 22 being used so much more. Um, if anything, you would have thought that you know the numbers could actually look worse for it because the larger sampler size shows us more of the truth. 
I'm not recommending you carry a 22 for personal defense. I'm not recommending you carry a 380. I'm not recommending you carry a 9mm. I'm not re recommending you carry a 50 Action Express. I'm recommending you carry a gun that you are confident with and you understand its limitations and you have it in case you need it and you pray to God that you never do. And in any single situation, you know what I loved was Frank Sharp Jr.'s answer to this question when somebody said, What should we expect when we take a shot at somebody that's wearing body armor if we're in a confrontation? He said the same thing you should expect to happen when you shoot at somebody that isn't. You should expect nothing to happen. That's why you continue to shoot until something happens. Because at the point that you've pulled the trigger, you've already decided my life or the life of somebody else is on the line. There's no such thing as overkill in that situation. When that... When that threat ceases to be a threat, that's when the shots stop being fired. As to the 380, it performed every bit as well as the 9mm in that study. Again, if anybody knows what I'm talking about, get the link, put it in the comments section uh, of the comments for today's so people can look at it. I just don't have time today to go look it up. But the 380 did every bit as good as the 9 I think it actually did a little bit better, and it actually did a little bit better than the 40 for first stop shot. And they both, it all was pretty low, right? And the, when I say better, I'm talking like 1%, 2%. But it was all, all of it was so weirdly uniform. However, let me be honest with you. There is a difference being shot in the ass and being shot three times in the chest. And it ain't about health points. However, I'll tell you, here's another. It's an anecdotal story, but it's a true story. This guy, I can't remember his name now. This was back in the 80s. I had a weird kid memory. I remember stuff like this, very detailed. Um, but he was a uh, martial artist, you know, third-degree black belt or something like that. Some guy tried to hold him up with a .357 revolver, shot him twice in the chest. He took the gun away from the guy and basically hit him over the head with it like a hammer, beat the crap out of him got in his car and drove himself to the hospital with two .357 slugs in his lungs. Now, I've seen what .357 slugs do. And if he had been shot, let's say differently in the lungs, I know that sounds crazy, but differently, he probably would have bled out where he stood. He may have went down. When it, you just don't know what's going to happen. If, if you get penetration and that bullet even nicks the spine... Your legs are coming out from under you. You're hitting the ground. You get shot in the face, it's going to change your perspective. I don't care what it is. You get shot in the face with a BB gun, it gets your attention. And a 32 Auto, a BB gun is not. So it's about training to use the weapon and understanding the weapon is only one part of the response to the threat. I think people have this in their head that like, Bad guy with a gun, good guy with a gun, good guy shoots bad guy, bad guy falls down. I don't care if it's a dirty, hairy special. It may not work that way, and it probably won't. Move. Get off the X. Take a defensive position. Execute your shot properly. Continue to execute until you don't have no more executing to be doing. Everything is your responsibility, including staying alive. I mean, that's... That's the world you live in as a person that carries concealed. And it's serious business. However, if I'm in a situation, you know, do I still feel that there is some advantage to carrying a, a, a heavier caliber? Yes. 
It's not huge, but it's there. So I may choose something that's proven over time to be a little bit more reliable, and I'm less worried about lethality, and I'm more worried about that first or second shot incapacitation. Because I'd actually prefer, I know from a litigation standpoint, I might be better off if the guy was dead. I prefer the guy not die. I prefer not to live knowing I took a human life if I don't have to. Even in a situation where my life or somebody else is at risk, if I don't have to kill the person, I prefer not to. So what I'm really concerned with, what is the incapacitation rate of that? Because if I shoot the guy twice and he shoots me and I die and he dies, it didn't do me no good. Maybe it did the world some good because that scumbag's not in it anymore. But that's, I mean, that's one of the, that's one of the problems with handguns. They're damn lethal. They're damn lethal. But they tend to be less effective with that initial incapacitation. People proceed in their attack longer. A lot of times people are shot, including with rifles, don't know they're shot initially. That's another thing. A lot of times knowing you're shot has a marked impact on how how effective the shot is. And a lot of combat veterans will tell you some stories that will curl your hair when you find out what people did that were shot that didn't know they were shot with AK-47s. So carry what works for you. All of these so-called experts say, if you don't have a Glock 19, you're wrong or whatever. Screw that. I promise you, uh, you know, an LCP 380 Ruger will seem like a pretty damn good thing to have if you ever need a gun compared to the fork on the table of the restaurant that you're sitting in when some idiot comes in there and starts shooting people. Get good at your craft, and that's more important than the gun you're carrying. However, reliability. Is the gun reliable? Take it out. Run more than a few boxes of shells from it, and if it's not reliable, get something else. If it's reliable, if it performs, I'm not that concerned with the caliber. I know that sounds like heresy, but that's how I feel. Next up, John in Moore Park sends us just a finger in the dike. Amazon Go is an existential threat to millions of jobs. Supermarket workers warn. Now, this is something I've been talking about a long, long time. So I'm not exactly the... Sure, like when the first time I ever talked about this on the air and said exactly what I thought would happen. But I know it goes back to the car. So I was in the car and broadcasting from my car from June of 2008 to December of 2009. And then on January the 3rd, I think it was 2010, I did my first episode from home for permanent and never went back to broadcasting from the car again. And um, so I know in the car that I, I said this is what I believed would happen with grocery stores. You would go in. You'd have some kind of pre-assigned account. You'd put all your stuff in your cart, and you'd roll out the door. There might be some kind of security check or something like that. But basically, you'd get some kind of a, a thing on your phone or something. that would say your total today is $321. Click here to pay or put your shit back. And you'd click that button and just go on about your business. And you'd never even see a checkout line. And I was told I didn't know what I was talking about. Technology never be made and blah, yada, yada, yada. And, and the way I said it would be done back then, and, I, and they're already doing this to a degree in places like China, using the technology I was talking about back then was through RFID. And I, I knew this because I had a client named Globe Ranger as a marketing client. 
prior to me starting this show. And the lady I was working with there explained to me that was their primary goal, that they made the RFID technology and the tags themselves. And Walmart was basically making vendors put RFID tags in everything. And they were kind of driving that, kind of a, a backside lobbyist type thing. And because, of course, if you have to have an RFID tag for everything, and if, even if they're a couple pennies a piece, and you're the person that makes them, it's good for you. So I had figured, you know, they would do this, but I was like, well, how do you put an RFID tag on a pepper? You know, so I wasn't sure exactly what they would do, how they would do it, but I figured they'd work it out. What they're doing more now is facial recognition cameras and scanners and cameras and things like that that determine what you've picked up and... I'm sure there'll be things like you'll you know get something that's being sold by the pound and you'll put it in the scale, and the scale will just say and the scale will communicate and and you put it in your bat you'll say accept you put it in your your deal and uh, you know you're you're good to go. But basically, here's what's Amazon Go is fixing to do this. Remember, I've talked about it before. They've done some experimental um, stores, but here's this article. Um, When reports emerged earlier this week that Amazon is planning to open up 3,000, 3,000, not a test store in Chicago, 3,000 cashierless Amazon Go stores by 2021, supermarket and grocery workers around the country held their breath. After all, developing thousands of new stores that lack human employees will undoubtedly pressure competitors like 7-Eleven, Walmart, and Safeway to cut back on their labor costs by adopting similar technology. Today, the United States Food and Commercial Food Workers International Union, representing 1.2 million supermarket and retail workers in the U.S., struck back at Amazon with a statement attacking the company as an existential threat that is opening the cashierless stores out of greed. They're just greedy. Here's the full text of the statement. It is time for America's elected leaders to wake up to the economic threat Amazon poses to our economy. Make no mistake. Opening cashless stores is not about convenience. Rather, it is about greed. Jeff Bezos and Amazon are deploying a business model that poses an existential threat to millions of American jobs. And it's time we are honest about the devastating impact this will have on our nation and tens of millions of hardworking families. A rep for Amazon did not request, not return a request for comment. Hmm. What did they just say? Amazon and Jeff Bezos are going to put babies in wood chippers if we don't have our elected. I mean, that's just how they're acting here. But they're right. Yeah, they're, their days are numbered. And here's the thing. I hear people, when you talk about this, it's not right. Yeah. I, just get a grip on reality. You know, I'll never self-check out because I'm not a paid employee. I'm not going to take away somebody's job. You know what? The people that are saying that today, you know who you are? You are the same people in the 1990s that are like, I'll never have a cell phone. If I can't talk to you at home, you're not worth talking to, and I'll just get, I'm not going to have my life taken over by, and I'll never have a cell phone. And you know who those people are today? They're the ones you go to a restaurant, they're with somebody, and the two of them are on their phone more than they're looking at each other or even their food. That's who they are. Those people will be the greatest and most rapid adapters of this technology when it actually works that you'll ever see. And I'll tell you why. The one thing that really sucks about going to a store is trying to get out the damn door. The rest of the process really ain't that bad. Now I'll tell you it's gonna get it's you know, there's gonna be a mix. There's also gonna be you're gonna pull your app up and say, I want all this stuff, and you're just gonna pick up a, your your stuff and leave. 
somebody's going to stick it in your car, a robot will put it in your car for you not too long from now. But this cashierless technology is developing very rapidly. And it is about customer service. And it's this greed idea. A company wanting to make a better profit is not in of itself greed in a negative way. And I hear people going, a lot of these people that are cashiers, there's not anything else they can do. They're also not very good at what they do, many of them. I know some of you probably in this audience are cashiers, and you are good at what you do. I appreciate you. There'll probably still be a place for you. Not every store is going to get rid of every cashier all at one time. So the people that are actually really good at their job and dedicated, they'll probably have a place to go. But I swear to God, the quality of people that do this job has gone down over time. And what the people defending it say is, well, they have to have something to do. Well, I don't know. You know, go pick oranges or something. You know, in the end, you don't not advance a technology that makes things better because people will not have a job. That's not how, like, think about this. When computer printers and copying machines came out, those two things came out, there were millions of women prior to that that worked in what were called typing pools. Big companies have, they can just go into this room and it's just hundreds and hundreds. It was usually women sitting in, in, in behind a typewriter and making copies of stuff and doing carbons and whatever. And, you know, people would, uh, somebody would sit down and do shorthand for the boss who would dictate it in shorthand. And that shorthand would go somewhere, get typed up and then filed as a memo or something like that. All those people. Don't have should we should we should we not have done that? Do you not know kill the milkman? Cars, cars, refrigeration was something that that helped, but it was really cars. I know like me in the seventies, you remember the milkman that drove a truck, but the original thing that started milkman was milkman with horse and carriage. Once we had cars, you could drive yourself to the grocery store, and they had a refrigerated section. It might have been a few decades that the milkman hung on from nostalgia, but that technology is what killed the milkman, refrigeration and cars. So should we go back and get rid of cars and refrigeration so the milkman can come back? Should we, should we, should we get rid of digital music so that we can bring the CD industry back? Should we get rid of the CD so we can bring back the cassette? Should we get rid of the cassette so we can bring back the LP? It's nonsensical. Now, the key is this time around, the disruption... And it's not just cashiers. If I'm a company, and I'm really greedy, like these people say, and all I want to do is cut my labor costs, the more money a person makes, the more incentive I have to eliminate their job. Because they cost me more. However, generally with lower paid, lower skilled workers, the more trouble they cause me. The guy that makes 180 grand a year, that's some kind of you know middle or upper management or some kind of sales consultant or something like that. You know what? I have no concerns whether he's going to be at his desk on Monday. He's not going to call me and whine that he has a nosebleed and he can't come to work. He's not going to tell me he has to go bail his cousin out of jail again or whatever. He's going to show up and do his job. He's going to get it done. Talk to people that run fast food restaurants, franchisees that own franchise, uh, franchise restaurants. What their number one problem is? Labor. And I guarantee you, a grocery store, number one problem is labor. And I think it has a lot to do with where you're at. What I've noticed is when you're in a smaller community, 
where there are people that consider working at the grocery store for 20 years viable as a career plan, you get pretty good people. The bigger the market, the more people that are there, the more other opportunities that exist, the more likely you're dealing with somebody that can barely read the employee manual they were handed the day they were hired as their training. But this is coming, guys, and it's not just coming here, and it's coming everywhere. And it's, it's, it's going to have this rapid acceleration that's going to really start to become apparent in the next couple of years. We've been leading up to it for 10, and I've been talking about it for 10. But like the other shoes dropping, and, and keep that in mind as we go forward from here. But you, you, they, they're right. It's millions of jobs that will be displaced because of this. And the important thing is it doesn't matter what you think about it. You think it's wrong, you think it's right. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I think about it, whether I think it's wrong or right. It is. You know, you can have, like, let's say you're, you were in the Carolinas when Hurricane Florence was on the way. You can think this is wrong, this hurricane shouldn't come here. But you better prepare for the consequences because all the thinking in the world, all the praying in the world, all the picket lines in the world ain't going to turn a hurricane. Well, people think a technology, since it's driven by human innovation, can be turned. Markets are going to market, and things like this can only be held back for so long. And right now, there's not even any kind of holding back going on. It's full steam ahead. Next up, this comes from Rob in Illinois. He says, uh, what's your opinion on accepting credit cards at farm stands? Background, thanks to your inspiration, I recently purchased five acres of land in a rural area. I live on what would be considered a busy street in the area. I get a lot of traffic, so eventually I set up a farm stand to sell produce, eggs, and other things produced on the homestead. I've seen people using on-site credit card payments, such as Square, uh, Square Reader. I understand they do charge a percentage to use, but less and less people are carrying cash these days. The ability to accept credit cards may outweigh the cost due to increased sales. I was considering setting up a small point of sale at a farm stand. Setup would include a touch screen, uh, select simple items, uh, pricing built in. Customer would run a credit card themselves, as I do not plan on being present at all times. I would secure the setup so theft of the equipment would minimize, but the risk is still present. Not really my concern. Does this mean I have to set up a business in the eyes of the Department of Making You Sad and tax issues? What are your thoughts on doing something like this? Thanks, Jack. Rob from Behind the Lines in Illinois. Okay, Illinois, I don't know what it means. I don't know if you have to have a money handler's license. I don't know. right? Exactly how it affects you in Illinois with license for food. So I don't know. So that's a legal question. That's not a strategic question. I'm going to give you the strategic answer. If you can do it, do it. Especially if you can do it without investing a lot of money, do it. So here what you have is you have Rob setting up cashierless checkout for customers on the honor system because they think it's more likely than not that they'll pay for their peppers and tomatoes. And this is done low-tech, by the way. Patrick, when I posted the article we just covered, Patrick Orman from MT Knives set up where he lives. they got Amish people that have stands, and they only take cash. But they have a box. You put the cash in. You take your stuff and just pay for it. And apparently enough people don't steal to make it worth doing. But in general, not necessarily point of sale where people just use their own keyboard to do it. I think if you are a small business person and you ever sell to people that you see face-to-face, -face, you should have some sort of technology to be able to take credit cards. PayPal has one that they give you a little thing that attaches to your phone. It's free. Yeah, there's fees. So what? There's a fee every time I sell an MSB. You can offer cash discounts to offset the fees. You know, So you can raise your price a little bit and then offer a discount for cash. Lots of people do it. 
what it makes me think of is, so yesterday I went to the uh, North American Reptile Breeders Conference with a buddy of mine in Arlington, Texas. It's the, one of the bigger shows like that that there is. Uh, the spring show is usually bigger than the fall. The fall is pretty big, too. We went to look around and just, it's kind of one of my hobbies. I like reptiles. I like amphibians. I always have. Um, I like fish. Just my kind of thing. So we were walking around there, and we didn't buy any animals or anything major, but we each picked up a few little odds and ends. I picked up some uh, cactus wood for a new little uh, shrimp tank I'm putting together, and uh, every single person there took credit cards. And I, I told this buddy of mine, you know, last time I was here was more than 10 years ago. And uh, at that point, almost nobody took credit cards. Like, there would be a line at the ATM, and if you didn't get there quick enough, the ATM might be cleaned out and you didn't have any cash, and you had to leave and go to an ATM and get cash, because so few people took credit cards. And I've seen that with gun shows, too. You know, 10, 15 years ago, you went to a gun show, and everybody's paying cash. And today, people take credit cards. As far as tax implications, there are none other than there's a record of the transaction, So if in some instances you're selling some stuff and you're just not reporting it, and I'm obliged to say you are supposed to, um, I would say you are going to report 100% of transactions that you do this way. And especially what's going to happen is if your transactions are over a certain number of transactions a year and your total sales are over a, number, a certain number, your merchant account provider uh, ever since the uh, Health Care Act, which has nothing to do with taxes but apparently does because it is a tax, Uh, this is where they started sending 1099Ks. So you're going to have all of these sales and transactions uh, into a bottom line number and a 1099K that your merchant account provider is going to provide to you and is going to send a copy of it to the government. So you're going to have to pay your, your taxes on those. Um, as far as sales tax, you have to figure out how you handle that. Most states do not have sales tax on food that is not cooked or prepared in some way. There's no value add to it. It is a raw food product. you know. Um, so if you sell somebody a chicken, it's not sales taxable. But if you sell somebody a cooked chicken, it is sales taxable. You, I don't know how Illinois works. They probably have a tax for looking at them. Like you, you have a looking tax. You have a talking tax. You have a breathing. Did you breathe while you bought it? Okay, there's a tax for that. I don't know how Illinois works. So you have to out those individual things. But I would do it. Uh, I don't know how much money I would put into it until the business model's proven when it, from a standpoint of this kind of terminal, you know, self-service terminal access. I don't know what the cost of that is. But I would advise any small business person to use some sort of a way uh, to take credit cards. Uh, next guy, again, must be a newer listener because I've talked about Tesla Powerwall quite a bit. Uh, it says, Jack, have you seen the Tesla Powerwall? Do you think a Stephen Harris battery? Think of a Stephen Harris battery bank on the grid, always charged. This looks like a great tool for the blackout kit. It may not be for everyone, but imagine a husband that travels and a wife who cannot safely operate a generator. Uh, they have medical equipment at home, and a power outage may see a serious inconvenience. I believe the Tesla Powerwall may be a bit expensive for some, but others invaluable. Personally, I don't think the price is that bad. Their calculator assumes seven days of continuous powers wanted. You can even uh, include your air conditioner in the calculator. The calculator says I need two uh, power walls. My cost would be $12,500 $12, plus $1,000 to $3,000 for installation. I don't think that's terrible for seven days of power for the whole house. 
I'd considered if I lived in a hurricane path or had medical equipment that needed power. Considering what you do for a living, I think you should order it and let us know how you like it. And a grin, a little smiley face there because it's a joke. Uh, sounds like a business expense to me. Uh, easy for me to say. I love spending other people's money. Uh, Tesla.com slash Powerwall is the site. Darren. Um, yeah, you sound like you can be in government. They like to spend other people's money, too. Uh, anyway, seriously, um, we've talked about the Powerwall quite a bit. And I believe this is one of the most innovative things to come along in the history of ever. And there's certain ways that I think you're going to see more and more of it being used. Number one is going to be in new home construction. Yeah, okay, say, say one of them's like six grand. And coming up with $6,000 out of pocket to put in a battery system in your home may not be something a lot of people run out and do. But if you're putting $200,000 or $300,000 into building a house, and then you have a $6,000 add-on that does this, and it moves your house payment up $6, which is about what it would do, it sort of becomes a no-brainer. Especially, you know, Tesla's working on these solar-powered shingles. So they, they, the, the, your entire roof is a solar panel, and if you're going to do that, it kind of starts to make a lot of sense. That's one way I see this starting to become more mainstream. Now, the other thing that we've talked about in with this, and I think this is going to kind of be a business model for Tesla going forward. It wasn't even that long ago. It was maybe a month and a half ago. There was a company in Vermont, an electric company in Vermont, that had a program. And the way the program worked was you could get a Tesla Powerwall for something like 17 bucks a month in your home on your electric bill. And when you look at something costing... Five six thousand dollars, and you know, yeah, when you're buying a thousand of them, you're going to get a discount, right? And there's another thing that starts to happen with economy of scale. We'll talk about in a second when a lot of people start buying a lot of them. But why would an electric company go out and agree to buy? You know, let's say at let's say they're getting them for forty five hundred bucks on some kind of volume sale. Well, they're buying them for forty five million dollars. Uh, and then they're going to get, in recouping their investment, $17 a month. And that's not how all of them are going to be. Let's round up, say, 30 bucks a month. So you got 1,000 times 30. You got $30,000 a month uh, coming back in. It's only $360,000 a year of payments against a $45 million expense. I'm sorry, did I say 45? It's $4.5 million. So their time to recoup their, their investment is... 12 and a half years and damn things probably need to be serviced and upgraded and new batteries in them uh, in that period or close to it anyway but they still have value at the end uh, and under that program you were leasing it so the electric company still owned it that's one way to offset it but it's still 12 and a half years repayment with no interest because that would be a zero interest repayment you, you wonder why they would do this well what does a power company spend to provide additional storage of power. A whole lot of money. Maybe not that much for the same amount, but a lot of money. So uh, Vermont Power, I think, was a company doing this. If they decide we need to add you know, X number of gigawatts of uh, power storage capacity for peak and off-peak times, well, they have to get environmental clearance. They have to deal with a whole bunch of regulations. Uh, they have to find a place. Uh, it, it's it's convoluted. It's a major construction project to manage. It always costs more than you expect. 
But if you can add all of that reserve power storage uh, broken up in little bitty pieces across your customer footprint, well, you get your storage capacity. Because the way these things work is the power company can take your power. And don't worry, they don't take it and steal it from you. They put it back. right? It, it meters in and meters out. But what that does is lets them draw from all of those pieces out there during a peak moment to avoid things like rolling blackouts and stuff like that. So as you see both the new housing development, where it's a small cost of the total, and you see um, the ability of power companies to cut deals, and you see economy of scale. So the next thing happens is, you know, Tesla doesn't sell that many of these things yet. For all the work that's gone into it, how big the, the gigafactory is becoming and all that stuff, they don't sell a lot of them yet. You start selling 100,000 or 200,000 of these things or a million of them a year, and all of a sudden the cost to produce one's going to drop. And it's conceivable that you can go out and buy brand new ones for three grand or less in another five years. Couple that with cheap solar, and this is the wave of the future. But would I go out today and buy a power wall, uh, two power walls to run my house for a week for 12.5? No. No. I mean, you could put in a standby backup generator that turns itself on running off gas for well less than that and have a hell of a lot more longer longevity. It is not as good of an investment in the long term from a standpoint of having a thing. But dollar investment-wise, it is a much smarter investment right now. This will change. They'll become more and more inexpensive options. And when I say inexpensive, you know, a couple thousand dollars for one of these things is very inexpensive. If I could put two or three of them in for two grand a piece, they'd probably already be here. If my power company had a thing where I could, and I think one of the options was like, you could lease one for like $10 a month. I'll take three. I'll take three. Absolutely. And, and more of that's going to come, and that's really what's going to drive uh, battery, you know, home-based battery systems is the economy of scale. And if it ain't Tesla, it'll be somebody. A lot of people beating up on Elon Musk and Tesla and what have you. This thing is going to be a thing whether Tesla does it or not. Uh, next up, uh, a question here comes in from Brian, and Brian says, uh, let me give you an initial question. He said, Jack, or TSP expert, what are potential causes of 78% tree failure in an amateur orchard? I live in Zone 5 in Missouri. Fall 2016, we planted 30 fruit trees into a new but professionally built swell system designed with Mark Shepard's stun concept, sheer, tutter, sheer utter total neglect in mind, no watering mode monthly. 50% of all the trees died after the first summer. This was expected. Dead trees were replanted in fall 2017. By spring, a whopping 80% of trees died. They never came out of winter dormancy. These are a mixture of fruit trees, intermixed planting of apple, pear, peach, plum, apricot, and cherry, compatible with our zone, bought from a local nursery. Almost all bare root, three-ish years old. In first fall, we planted heavy wood chip mulch over the landscape fabric with hard plastic trunk guards, uh, 12 inches, uh, about 12 inches. Okay, so... Heavy wood chip mulch over landscape fabric. If you pile wood mulch up against the trunk of your trees, a lot of times you kill them that way, even outside of everything else I'm going to say. Trees don't really like to have a bunch of stuff covering up their root flare. So where that tree hits the ground, and where those roots enter the ground, and, and this is a totally different thing that I'm going to talk about here in a second, but 
it, it could be that you planted these trees too deep. That's one of the worst things you can do. And if you pile mulch up against there, you'll basically rot the cambium and kill the tree. It's like putting a wire around it and cutting into the cambium and letting the tree grow itself to death. That's, that's one thing that could have happened there to make what's bad worse. Uh, second round of planting, we cut out the fabric and just use very heavy wood chip mulch, about eight inches, two to three foot around the trees, the same plant guards, four inch plastic drain. Again, if those are piled up against a tree, that's bad. Uh, they do a thing they call them volcanoes around here. You see all these landscapers putting these trees, and it's like as big. Wood mulch should be spread out, um, and it actually should get thinner as it goes up to the tree. Your thick mulch should be out by the outer drip line of the tree and should get thinner, and there should be almost nothing up at the base of the tree itself. Um, I dug up three trees this spring. There was no visible root damage on any. All the trees in the orchard seemed to be struggling. Soil was untouched, natural field grass before Swell dug three foot deep and creating three foot berms we planted in. Why would so many trees make it through the first winter harsher but die in the following winter less harsh? Neither winter was that bad. All thoughts possible is greatly appreciated. Brian. Well, Brian, they may have died because they didn't get any irrigation. I don't know how much rain you got through your summer and weaken the trees. Weak trees die easier in the winter. But here's what I sent back to him as a short answer. I said, I'll do this either Friday or next Monday. But the short answer is... Thou shall not stun grafted selected variety trees. Thou shall stunneth seed-grown trees. Uh, and and uh, what I did include is, thou shall not spend tons of money only to abandon it. All right? So he sent back, he said, is there a way to stun grafted trees, even if that means two times year maintenance? Or can we possibly source stun-compatible seedlings? I'm not opposed to trying to trying deed I don't know what he means by that, but I prefer other options. Um, uh, TSP has really changed my life. Hopefully more of that in the future. Yeah, Brian, I, th thanks for saying that. Okay, look, let's talk about what stun is, sheer, tutter, total, utter neglect, and how Mark Shepard uses this. Because this is a, an example of a good technique applied improperly. What Mark means by that is he'll either grow from seed or get very inexpensive seedlings. And the stuff he grows mainly for nuts are chestnuts and hazelnuts. And he grows things like plums and apples as well because they survive in his fairly even colder than you are ecosystem. But he's buying, again, trees that you're getting for 50 cents, 75 cents a tree, maybe a dollar. And if you're planting thousands of them and you're buying them from like a state uh, nursery, like we, we were able to buy like 10,000 chestnut seedlings for the farm we had in West Virginia for under a thousand bucks. It was well under a thousand bucks. And it was almost like going from 5,000 to 10,000 was almost free. Because these nurseries, just these, these state nurseries, they just want the trees planted somewhere. Now, what you do with stun. You're planting like a tree a foot, not spacing out 30 trees and mulching them individually. You're planting like a tree a foot. And when the, one, the ones that die, they die. And then let's say you have 50% death you know, rate, 80% death rate. Your trees are still too close together to grow into full-size chestnut trees. So then you look at them and go, Okay, these ones started flowering in, in the third or fourth year or whatever, and these ones are big in the third or fourth year. These other ones are kind of scrawny, and they're still not flowering. Cut them down. And you find the trees that produce quickly and grow fast and survive. 
Stun is not about making the tree strong by abusing it. Stun is about finding the strong tree by abusing it. So if you get a whole bunch of people and start pushing them to physical, complete, and total exhaustion, some of them will die. This is how they used to train combat troops. You know, people, you're going to die in battle anyway, so you might as well just go ahead and die here because you can't handle the training. But you will find the strongest among them. But not everybody's going to end up being strong, or not even a certain, a certain large number of them are going to end up being strong. You understand, like, where this comes from. So when you plant 30 trees, you haven't even gotten to the kind of numbers you need to be talking about to be stunning anything. So these trees, these are your high-value trees. And if you're doing high-value trees, this is where you should be doing things like running drip irrigation, providing additional fertility. And you know if you're never going to prune them, then never prune them and let them grow in a natural form. Or if you prune them ever, then they need to be pruned annually at minimum. This is orchard orcharding, not savanna pasture, silvopasturing. All right? So this is just two totally different worlds. Can you stun them? Sure. But in the end, you're getting selected variety trees. There's not a big genetic difference. In fact, there's no genetic difference in them. You know, a, a Arkansas black apple is an Arkansas black apple. And if you buy 50 of them, they, all the sign would may come from the exact same one of them. So then the only genetic variation is in the rootstock, if that... And that doesn't do you any good for the resiliency of the tree. So if you want to do a stun project, what you're looking to do is get a whole bunch of apple seedlings, a whole bunch of peach seedlings, etc., and plant them, again, at something like a foot or even every six inches. It's too close. Sure it is. But that's the point. You're going to get 80% of them to end up dead, either because they died or you killed them. So this is, again, this is the right technique applied inappropriately. So now you have to decide what you want. If you want an orchard with 30 trees, select your new tree varieties, put in drip irrigation, do not mulch up onto the roots of the trees, make sure the trees are not planted too deeply, get on dirtdoctor.com and look up sick tree treatment, and never make your tree sick, but by understanding what you do with the sick tree treatment, you'll understand how not to make the tree sick in the first place. And the number one problem that trees have being planted too deep. And people say, well, I got the graft above the soil line. Well, that's a start. It doesn't mean that, you know, that you've actually planted the tree properly. Where those first roots flare out, they should be right at the surface. If you look at your tree and it looks like a telephone pole, you've planted it too deep. These are also bare roots. That's a good thing. They're a fall planted. That's a good thing. But when they were fall planted might be important. At, at, in some instances, I actually believe when it comes to selected varieties, you're better off planting early spring in a well-started, leafed-out tree, but clean that dirt ball off. Because if you plant below the top of that dirt ball, you're definitely going to plant that tree too deep. And, and just understand that stun is, again, I think there's some people out there, they think what it is is by abusing the tree, you make the tree strong. No, you abuse the trees, and the strong trees put their hand up and say, I'm still here, I'm alive, and I'm producing. 
work with me, work with me. That's what Stun's about. So, you, you, again, now you're at a point of decision. Do you go with all seed-grown variety trees and do the Stun method, or do you go in and put some supporting infrastructure in and go ahead and support those trees? Now, in your climate, you do get quite a bit of rain and, and what have you, and it, it, you know, it, it may be worth doing. Uh, is, a, is a grafted type variety. And I do think you can probably get trees to where, you know, three or four years in, you probably don't have to irrigate at all in your climate most years. But I'm going to tell you, you know, drought kills. It doesn't matter. Uh, this year, we lost trees this summer that I didn't plant. Nature planted them. I have a couple trees on my property that died that are 15-year-old native-grown trees that never had a drop of irrigation in their life. So to me, irrigation is probably one of your things. And again, I really think you need to look at how you're planting these trees and, again, understand the technique. And, uh, and the swales, man, swales are not magic. They are a tactic. They are a technique that slows, spreads, and soaks water. And they do that very well. And you can put them in absolutely perfectly, but if there ain't enough water to slow, spread, and soak, we got to supplement what those trees are getting, especially when we're doing a grafted variety. One of the things you'll notice a lot of times, and I'd be interested to hear back from Brian here, when you dug these trees up and you say they were dead and they didn't have any root damage, if you went below the graft with a knife and scraped that trunk, was, that, was the root stalk still alive? Because if that's the case, then you probably are definitely just not giving these trees enough support. So the root's surviving, but the, the, the top that's been grafted onto the rootstock is not. Um, but just in case I wasn't clear, I'll say it one more time. Selected grafted trees are not for stunning. Now, if you just put them all out there and kind of sort of stun them, and then you go, okay, well, these varieties survive with little or no support, and I'm going to get more of those varieties that survive, okay, But survive and thrive are different things, too. Like, if you have trees that, yeah, they're still alive, but they just don't put any growth on this year, and then they die in that winter, don't be surprised. That means that tree was never getting what it needed. So I'd look at your nutrient load. I'd look at your depth of planting. I'd look at how you're applying the mulch. And I would look at definitely providing, at least during the dry period, some su supplemental irrigation. Or get on the seed-grown tree uh, pathway, and don't be afraid. It's all going to be apples you can't eat or something like that. It doesn't work that way. Um, it, it's certainly something you can do and, and produce some pretty good stuff with. That brings us to the end of another show. Remember, one of the ways you can help support this show is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. Whenever you're going to shop online, just go to tspaz.com first. As long as you shop from there, you help support us no matter what you buy. I do have write-ups every day for you guys so you can uh, see some of the stuff that I recommend. And remember, if I recommend it, I spend my money on it, and I would again, or I don't recommend it to you. Uh, today's product is sumac, S-U-M-A-C, like, like sumac, like poison sumac, like uh, staghorn sumac, like smooth sumac. All of those are different types of sumac. This is actually a Middle Eastern European variety of sumac that we don't grow here in the United States, though I'm not sure if we could or not. I'm not sure, but it's very different in some ways, but it is similar to our sumacs. Now, I said poison sumac. Unless you're colorblind and geographic, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for, not geography, uh, geometry, ge geometry, how do you say geometry, geometrically, All right, so geometrically uh, dyslexic, 
right? So you don't understand up versus down. It's impossible to confuse poison sumac from sumac. Poison sumac grows white berries and they hang down. Sumac grows red berries and they stick up. All right, so I don't think you would eat poison sumac berries for very long either, not just because they're bad for you, because they wouldn't taste good. Um, but sumac that's in the United States can be used to do this with, but this, this Middle Eastern stuff is a bit better uh, for food use. And it has kind of a tart, lemony type thing. And I use it to make lamb sausage. It's fantastic. Uh, I use it to make carrot fries. It's one of my favorite uses for it. For carrot fries, all we do is we just cut carrots into like sticks, and then we um, coat it with a little bit of oil, sprinkle some sumac, salt, and pepper on them, and roast them at 425 until they're done in the oven. Sweet potato fries are damn good like that, too. This stuff's great. It's like $9 for a jar of it. Give it a try. I think you'll like it. Again, it's made by a company called Sadaf, S-A-D-A-F. You'll find it at tspaz.com under the most current reviews. Uh, you'll find it under the, uh, the the food section as well. And at the main website, thesurvivalpodcast.com, you'll find it as the most recent review below the episode you're listening to today. Uh, again, you help support us when you do your online shopping at tspaz, no matter what you buy. Also, you can help support us by joining the MSB. Remember, if you want to come to the fall workshop and you're not an MSB member, I'm just going to tell you it's not going to happen this year. You're not going to get an opportunity, so you might want to join just so you can sign up uh, on Saturday. But there's a lot of great deals that we have for you in the MSB as far as discounts. People that use the MSB, you know, they get their money back. Let's like ButcherBox alone. If you're going to be a ButcherBox customer and you're not going to be an MSB customer, you hate money. You hate money. Because it works out, let's say you're going to be a butcher box customer and you're going to get a box every other month, not every month. Well, you're going to save $10 per box, six months out of the year, $60, MSB membership $50. You hate money. There's $10 back in your pocket. And you have another 60 discounts you can use. That's just an example, you know. Um, if you're going to buy seeds every year, you know, any seeds, we do a 20% discount to any seed. We have a lot of seed companies who do 10, 15, 20% discounts. We have ready-made resources we do discounts for. Berkey guy we do discounts for. So consider being an MSB member. You get your money back. 50 bucks a year, 18 cents an episode is what it comes out to. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members. And now we have our song of the day. We are going into REO Speedwagon Week. And while I think you will hear some songs this week that you'll recognize... You'll hear some that you probably don't unless you're a true dyed-in-the-wool fan that goes all the way back to 1971 when this uh, band first launched. Um, this is off their first album, and it's called Anti-Establishment Man. And if you're familiar with REO Speedwagon and, and songs like uh, Can't Fight This Feeling Anymore and... Uh, Take it on the run, time for me to fly, keep on loving you, uh, all of the roll with the changes. Um, you're probably not going to recognize this if those are the th songs that you like, the songs that you know, and you don't really know other songs. Um, it goes back to when the band originally formed, you had a completely different lead singer. Um, Kevin Cronin is the guy you're thinking of, and his vocals are very distinctive. That falsetto and high pitch, and like, He, he's an incredible artist, and it's what made REO a big hit, a big band, and, and well-known. Uh, but back in 71, when this song, again, Anti-Establishment Man, was listed, or uh, released, uh, Terry, uh, Terry Luttrell, Luttrell, I think is how you say his name, Terry Luttrell, 
um, was their lead singer. And he's not bad. He just he ain't Kevin Cronin. I mean, they're nothing like each other. And even the style of music is quite different. But it's an interesting song, and the vocals are really interesting, especially considering the time. Remember, we're still at the tail end, but we're still having to deal with names on the TV every night from people dying in the Vietnam War. There's 58,000 men that are never coming home. They're going to build a wall to eventually when this song is released. And, it, you know, like most songs, it was written quite a bit before it was released. Um, but here's, I'm going to give you the lyrics to this song. It's actually pretty short on lyrics. Standing by the roadside, old newspaper in my hand, reading yesterday's headlines, nothing new. I said, it's all the same everywhere. I'm the fool of the year, and I've been waiting 25 years of anticipating, I've seen changes in my land. People, I'm here to tell you, I've been around since the world began. Well, Mr. Politician, reform me if you can. I'm an anti-establishment man. I'm tired of your treating all of my children the same everywhere. Spending all that money on a stupid war in Vietnam when we need it at home. I'm here to tell you, I think it's about time that the world began all over. Will Mr. Politician reform me if you can? I'm an anti-establishment man. Um, I think there's a lot of people in music and entertainment as a whole that think they're anti-establishment. They're just a different side of the establishment. And I can't speak for the folks that originally put this song out where they really were on it. But I do agree with the sentiment. There's, there's a line in here, though, that I think might have, might have perked your ears up because it doesn't make a lot of sense if you don't think about it right. Because so, at some point he says he's been waiting you know, for 25 years. But then the next stanza he says, I've been around since the world began. I think that statement, I've been around since the world began, is not really what it sounds like, meaning me. I'm not so arrogant as to believe I've been around. The anti-establishment man. The people who stand up against the establishment, the people that stand up against the state, the people that stand up against war, the people that stand up for true liberty, have been around since the world began. Now, I think in this song, they mean kind of since civilization began and it was necessary. But the original human beings were non-establishment. There was an establishment. When you talk about you know a stateless society or even a libertarian society, people are like, we'd never functioned. We, as a species, have lived longer as anarchists than any other thing we've lived as. I mean, if you really think about how long humans have been on the planet and how long civilization's been a thing, as a species, we have lived longer without government than we have with government. In the way that anarchists actually mean stateless. But I'll give you credit on one thing those of you on the other side of that, for humankind to progress to where it has, technologically, etc., kind of required an establishment. It's my hope that what we, we do is we've taken everything we've learned and we begin to evolve out of so much need for it. But I still consider myself pretty anti-establishment. I hope you do too. I hope you enjoy this song. Again, like I said, if you're really familiar with REO Speedwagon, but you're not familiar with the early days, You might even, like my wife, her favorite, her favorite band of all time is REO Speedwagon. When I was screening this song this morning, 
she came in my office and asked me a question, and I, I turned it off and answered her, and I said, hey, he, he, do you know who that was? And she goes, no. I said, that's REO Speedwagon. She didn't believe me. I had to show her. But here we go. Anti-establishment man, REO Speedwagon, 1971. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.